morning is from Exodus chapter 5, Exodus chapter 5, and I invite you to turn there this morning. It's to be found on page 48 of the Pew Bible. If you don't happen to own a modern copy of the scriptures, a modern translation of the scriptures, please consider the blue Pew Bible in front of you to be your very own. Please take it home and read the cover off of it, and once you do that, come back, grab another one, and you can have that one too. We really want you to have a copy of the scriptures that you can read and study on your own. Also, happy Father's Day. It's been a privilege and a pleasure to have Father's Day this morning. My children greeted me with a gift that made me smile. Uh, One of the gifts that they usually get me, as you guys know, in my front yard, we have a flagpole, and I like to put the flag of my favorite college football team in the front yard, the South Carolina Gamecocks. And for many years, they have made me sad and ashamed to be a Gamecock, but not this year. (laughs) We had a good year, and so I was disappointed when we moved to the rental property. We didn't have a flagpole there, and uh, but the kids got one, and uh, I had my, I have my 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 rental home now has been christened uh, as a Gamecock home, and so you may not root for the Gamecocks. That's okay. We can't all be righteous people, Um, (laughs) and. So, you know, we'll pray for you, and uh, you can come over and share in the suffering uh, with this Gamecock fan. So thank you to my kids for making today special. As I said, we're in Exodus chapter 5. I was going to preach a special Father's Day sermon, a text just for fathers, but then when I looked ahead and saw Exodus 5, I thought, well, actually, I don't think I could have picked a better text for dads. Dads, if you find yourself as a dad, you know something very clearly by now. You know that you're a leader. You know that you never outgrow that. You'll always be a leader. And the one thing that I can confidently say about leadership, and that I know you can too, is that leadership can be a lonely place, can't it? Well, here we find a man today who's stepping into the role of leader as the leader of God's children, and he finds himself very lonely and isolated by the end. So let's see from this passage how Moses dealt with that. Exodus chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, we're going to study the whole chapter today. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall upon us with pestilence and with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters 
had said over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task in making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like that, like this? It's, that's probably too strong of a translation. It should be more like this. What, what, pray tell, why are you doing thusly? They're being very kind. No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is with your own people. It's almost as though the people thought, Pharaoh's a reasonable man. and If we can just say it the right way, he'll come around. There must be some grave misunderstanding. But, verse 17, he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce the number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them, as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the eyes of Pharaoh or in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. You have put a sword in his hand to kill us. And Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Let's pray. Father, would you give us grace to understand this passage? Would you help us to see that sometimes the way up is down? You've promised us that there will be in this life tribulations, but your grace will always be sufficient. Help us to take hold of that truth today and look to you, not allowing an initial emotional, angry, and agitated response to Take hold of our hearts, but may we look to you in prayer. Moses did this failingly. May we do it with the spirit of Christ in our hearts, giving us comfort and peace and hope as we look to you. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I knew this was not a children's church week, so I thought I would ask, begin by talking to the children very quickly. I have a question for you, kiddos. Today's Father's Day. Let me ask you a question about your father's father, your grandparents. How many of you know your Grammy and Grandpa, your Nana and Papa, your Oma and Opa, whatever you call them? How many of you love your grandma and grandpas? Raise your hands nice and high. You love your grandmas and grandpas. Oh, oh. Okay, hands down, hands down. Now, I, I know most of, for most of you, I know your grandmas and grandpas, and I know that they're wonderful people. But what if I told you, what if I told you that your grandma or your grandpa was a bad person. Would you believe me? Would you believe me? I'm seeing a bunch of head shakes. You would say, no, I would not believe that. Now, for most of you, it would be very true. That, well, what I would say, if I, I would be lying, because I know your grandparents, and they're good people. I want to tell you a little bit about my dad and my granddad. My dad's dad, my grandpa, when I was your age, I thought he was good and funny. Children, I've since learned a different truth. Actually, it was the real truth the whole time. My grandpa, my dad's dad, was a bad man. He was such a bad man that he would blame his bad on you. He would steal from you. And when you would complain about it, he would say, well, if you're so foolish as to let me steal from you, then that's your fault. Later in my grandpa's life, he tried to make amends. He turned his life around, and that's to be praised. But for many years, 
for many years. My dad really struggled with that. I love my dad, and I have tremendous respect for my dad. But children, I want you to know something. I didn't always understand my dad because I didn't understand this. Children, I would ask, why is my dad doing this? Why is my dad doing that? Why did my dad make that decision? And I came to find out later that my dad wanted, more than anything else, to be a really good dad. My dad really wanted to be a good dad, and he is and was. But children, I have one more question for you. Okay, I really want you to answer this one, okay? When my dad decided I want to be a good dad, did that make his life easier or harder? Children, I heard two answers. How many of you say, when my dad decided to be a good dad, that made his life easier? How many of you would say? Probably so. Okay. How many of you would say the other way? When he decided to be a good dad, that would make his life harder. How many would you say? Yeah. Okay, okay, hands down, hands down. Well, I want you to know it was the second one. When my dad, to his great credit, said, I want to be a really good dad, it made his life harder, not easier. Children, sometimes, in fact, most of the time, following God temporarily for a short time makes life harder. And that's what we see in this passage today. And I want to encourage your dads this morning that it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. Let's get a little context from our passage here in John chapter, and um, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter five. Uh, Andrew's been preaching through First John, and so now I've got John on the brain. In Exodus three and four, God calls Moses to the office of prophet. He says, "I want you to go, and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go, and I want you to become the leader of my people." God commissions him and sends him and says, "Go." Right at the very start, several, you know, God makes several predictions. He says this and that and the other is going to happen. And so far, almost everything that's happened has been a good thing. Moses' brother appears out of nowhere and says, hey, I'll help you. And they're excited to see each other and they hug each other. The elders of Israel believe Moses' report. And that in itself is almost unbelievable. How is it that you could get all these people to hear something and believe it? And they do. But so you know, when God said to Moses, go lead my people, he told them that some hard things were also going to happen. I know that Pharaoh will not let you go unless he is compelled by a mighty hand. God told them that would happen. And now, in Exodus chapter 5, Moses tells the not-so-encouraging parts of the story that begin to come true. What God said would happen did happen. And we're at a phase of the story where following God makes life temporarily more challenging. And I say that not lightly. It made life very challenging in the short run. The first thing, well, the, the one thing that I want you to see, or maybe you even picked it up on it, as we read, is Moses tells this part of the story using four confrontations. Okay, and those are the outline, that's the outline, those are the points we're going to follow today. God's prophet, or Moses, confronts Pharaoh, that's our first confrontation. And then God's people go and confront Pharaoh. And then God's people confront God's prophet, and then God's prophet confronts God. And so we see this full circle take place. God says, Moses, go and speak to Pharaoh about the people. The people go and talk to Pharaoh. 
The people then go talk to Moses, and Moses goes and talks to God. Do you see how that comes full circle all the way around in Exodus 5? And that's how we're going to follow our outline. There's these four confrontations that go in a bit of a circle. So let's take our first confrontation. God's prophet confronts Pharaoh. And this is the first 14 verses of the chapter. Moses and Aaron get an audience with Pharaoh, and they go and they confront him. Now, in my opinion, this is a bit of a miracle. How many of you would have an audience with Joe Biden, for example, simply because you wanted it? Even powerful people, I'm not a powerful person, but even powerful people who want to have a conversation with Joe Biden aren't permitted to. Moses and Aaron were granted access to the sovereign was amazing. Commentators will tell you that this was part of the king's duties. He was to meet with the people, and that much is true. But kings had a way of burying news they didn't want to deal with deep in the annals and pages of procedure. And so Moses and Aaron, God speeds them along, and here they're given an audience. And they say, they, they confront Pharaoh with a two-part with a two-part request as God's representative, and the second one is more on a personal note. They say, so look at your translations and look at the first verse here, and we see, believe it or not, for the first time in all the Bible, this phrase, thus says the Lord. Now, this is going to become a phrase that is used many more times in the Bible, but here it is for the first time. Now, a little bit later in the passage, we see Pharaoh say, thus says Pharaoh. And here we have a confrontation of words, a confrontation of people. Who's going to win? Thus says the Lord, or thus says Pharaoh? Whose word matters more? And moving forward here, we're going to see that contest play out. I'll give you a spoiler alert. It's not much of a contest. But that's the contest that's being put in front of us. Thus says the Lord. First time in all the Bible it's used. Pharaoh responds poorly, and then Moses and Aaron then give an appeal. They say, but Pharaoh, listen. All we want, all we want is a three-day journey into the wilderness to sacrifice. And we're begging that you let us do this lest plagues or sword or famine, pestilence, fall upon the land. Pharaoh, the consequences are high. All we're asking for is three days' journey and back. It'll be fine so that we can worship. Now, commentators are puzzled over two parts of this. Number one was Moses misleading Pharaoh. He says three-day journey, but his ultimate goal was to get the people out entirely. Well, I don't think so. Ultimately, it was Pharaoh's decision to make the people leave entirely. Leave, all of you. And all the Egyptians were like, you leave, all of you. And all along, do you remember Pharaoh bargaining? Well, what if you went just a short way into the wilderness? Or, yes, you can go, but only the men. What this was, I think, was God's way of showing everybody how unreasonable Pharaoh was going to be. And he changed Pharaoh so much that Pharaoh and the people themselves kind of bid against themselves, as it were, and sent the people out and moving. God, who knows the end from the beginning, already knew that that was what was going to happen. But even on this very small matter, Pharaoh and his people were unrelenting. The second thing that commentators get a little bit bent and not twisted in knots over is the fact that Moses doesn't say exactly what God had told him to say earlier. Maybe some of you picked up on that. I don't think that that's necessarily a problem. I think God was doing a lot of talking to Pharaoh. 
There's nothing that Moses said here that's inconsistent with what God said before or what would happen later in the story. And Moses is under no obligation to tell us the order in which God spoke to him. And so I think what's happening here is Moses was given other information. Uh, We're not privy to the timing of it, but he's weaving it into his story. And I think that's how it explains sort of what Moses is doing here as the author. So if you picked up on that, that I think, in my opinion, is the best explanation. Now, Pharaoh hears this request, this two-part request, one as God's representative and one as a personal appeal. And Pharaoh's response is nothing short of catastrophic. It's catastrophic to his own soul. And what we're going to see as a theme moving forward in this chapter is when people are confronted, their initial reaction is twofold, and it's the same every time, anger and accusation. Pharaoh is confronted, and he is angry, and he makes accusations. Pharaoh gets confronted again, and he's angry, and he makes accusations. Moses is confronted by the elders, and he gets angry, and he makes accusations. Pharaoh confronts the leaders of the people, and they get angry, and they make accusations. It's the pattern that happens. The pattern is broken in chapter 6-1 when God neither gets angry nor makes accusations, but takes action. But from the human side, there's this pattern that repeats itself four times. Anger and accusation, and this is the first one of those four. Pharaoh hears this, and he grows angry, and he makes accusations, and he takes upon himself a very godlike demeanor. Listen to how Pharaoh puts himself in the position of God. He has this brash superiority. He says, who is Yahweh? It's dismissive. I don't know who that is. Who's this person? Who's this guy coming in here saying these things? Who are you? Well, God's about to show Pharaoh who he is. And if Pharaoh had any doubts at all, if there was any excuse of ignorance, that's going to be totally wiped out as God, one after the other, destroys Pharaoh's pantheon of gods. But he doubles down. He says, I don't know, Yahweh. There's this I, I, me, myself, and I. I, Pharaoh, who made the people believe that he was a god in the flesh, is insulted that another god would come into his court, his domain, his realm, and start making demands. Pharaoh would say to God, you're out of your lane, this is my domain. I don't know who you are, I'm God of this land. And he's acting like it, he's acting like he really believes that. He says here, he feigns omniscience. Pharaoh pretends that he knows everybody's heart. Actually, I don't think he's pretending. I think he, he thinks he actually knows what's in people's hearts. People who are despots, these totalitarian rulers, they surround themselves typically with yes-men, and they suddenly believe that their opinion on everything is right. And so, Pharaoh's opinion, was you're lazy, therefore it's true, you're lazy. That's sort of how his reasoning goes. He pretends to know the hearts of the Israelites. You're lazy, you're idle. Pharaoh presumes to determine the truth. Pharaoh is acting like he knows everything. And Pharaoh is acting like he has all power. Here he says, thus says Pharaoh. He deliberately makes his declaration to be the same that God made. Thus says the Lord, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, thus says Pharaoh, get your own straw. He's deliberately aping the words of God to mock God to show that he's more powerful than Yahweh himself. Now just so we're aware, this business of the straw and the bricks and so forth, I'm sure... Most of you have already heard this before, but we do something very similar. Uh, You'll hear hear, uh, commentators say, well, it's like putting rebar in concrete. Well, 
Maybe. It's actually more like nowadays, you, you guys know what we put in concrete to reinforce it besides rebar? We'll put fiberglass in rebar. And it very strongly reinforces, or did I say rebar? We'll put fiberglass in the concrete, okay? And that reinforces it and makes it strong. It's a very similar concept. Now, the process was actually pretty fascinating. They took straw, pre-made straw, and they put it into a big vat, mixed it up with water and some chemicals, and they mashed it into a pulp. And then they would take that pulp and mix it in with the bricks, and then they didn't have to kiln dry the bricks. Egypt was essentially stripped of trees then as it is now. They've always had to import their own firewood. And so to have to kiln dry a brick was extremely expensive and unworkable. But with the use of straw mixed into the brick, they could be dried out in the sun and become extremely strong in and of themselves. Now, the Israelites were told, you have to go get your own straw. We're not going to provide your straw anymore. What they did with the leftover straw, I don't know. But you may have noticed in the translation, and it's a good translation, it says that the people were forced to go dig up Double. It's a different word, and it's a different thing entirely. Straw was deliberately grown and harvested and cut and made just for brick making. But that was a process that took place very far away. And now that the people had to go find their own stuff, they were reduced to going out into farmer's fields or wherever they could get it and digging up the little shoots of ground that's cut off just above the ground and just before the fruit begins of whatever they're happening to grow. And it is this stubble, as it were, is a lot of different stuff. And it serves as a very poor substitute for the straw that they were using in the brick making. So not only was it the collection of it, it was the inferior nature of it that created a nationwide shortage of a vital building material. Now, let's put ourselves in the Egyptian shoes for just a minute. Do you remember last year about this time, maybe a little bit before, there was a concrete shortage in Utah. And we at Fellowship Bible Church, who were trying to complete a parsonage project, were considering holding all-night vigil prayer services for concrete. I say that only barely tongue-in-cheek. It was a desperate need. I found myself every day that went by and no concrete truck was showing up at our property getting a little angrier. I would drive down to a city work and see five concrete trucks down there. Or I would see the rich man's house and there'd be two concrete trucks there, and I wondered, how much extra did he kick in? How is it that 20% of the concrete ends up going, you know, all these other places? And I began to get upset. I wasn't proud of that response, but how many of you may have felt the same thing? Maybe, maybe not, perhaps so. Anybody else? A few of you did. Imagine being a tradesman, and that's your work. This is your job. This is your livelihood. You're a mason. And you've got projects and you've got customers and you've got mouths to feed. You've got babies at home. And suddenly, out of nowhere, you're getting no bricks or inferior bricks and you can't get your jobs done. And you can't get paid. And you can't get food on the table for your family. And this is happening all over the country. How many of you would get mad at the people over the industry of brick making? How many of you would be upset about that? Of course you would. And that explains what happened to the Israelites. That explained the pressure they were under. They were beaten severely. They were being demeaned. They were being attacked. 
it wasn't just the pressure from Pharaoh coming down on them. It was the pressure from all these other industries. I, I don't know if there were the Cairo Times, but it would have been front page news everywhere. National brick shortage. No end in sight. And the Israelites would have felt this huge pressure to provide this needed building item. And on top of it, it's not their fault. It's a totally unworkable situation. It's impossible. There are disastrous consequences. There's dispersions, there's beatings. Families are living apart now so that dad can go get straw and mom or a young son, the kids have to leave off education and school so that they can go scrounge up some stubble so that we can make more bricks. It's a terrible situation. And so God's people, like Pharaoh, are filled with anger and accusation. And they decide that Moses was to blame. What did he tell Pharaoh that made Pharaoh create this declaration? Notice when the people go to Pharaoh, they don't mention the name of the Lord at all. Now, to their credit, they don't deny the Lord. But, before their lives were hard, their lives were wrecked, and they were praying out to God. But somehow it managed to get worse. And the variable in this situation is Moses and this person that he's calling Yahweh, the Lord. And so they naturally assume, like we probably would have, Moses must have insulted him. Moses must have said something unreasonable. Moses must have broken protocol or done something wrong, or maybe he shouted Pharaoh down. Who knows what happened? And so in the midst of this nationwide brick shortage, the brick makers schedule a summit with Pharaoh, and they all go together to talk to him. And sometimes in these situations, you get two parties coming together, and they think they're coming to talk about something, but they each have different ideas. And that's what I think was happening in this conversation. Pharaoh likely came to this meeting thinking, the Israelites were going to lie down and say, forget the request to go away and worship. We don't want that anymore. Drop that idea. We just want our straw back. I think that's what he thought was coming. And perhaps the Israelites were thinking, surely there's a misunderstanding. Surely there was a miscommunication. If we say it nice enough, we'll be treated well. Credit to them, though, they did not deny the Lord. And they did not deny Moses, but they go to Pharaoh and they say, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, please. This is our second confrontation. The people say to him, we're your servants. They acquiesce in every way. Notice in the way they talk to him, beginning in verse 15. Three times they affirm that they are his servants. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came to Pharaoh and said, why do you treat? your servants thusly. No straw is given to your servants. And now they take the blame completely off of Pharaoh as though he had nothing to do with this. Yet they, no straw is given to us. That's a passive idea. Yet they say, not you, they make bricks. And behold, your servants were, were beaten. And that makes our production go down even more. But the fault, you're probably not aware of this, Pharaoh, but your servants were telling you the problem is with them, and we're asking that you would intervene and make this better and talk to them, and we'll, we'll get our brick quota back up again. They're as deferential as they can possibly be. And what happens next? You remember the pattern that we talked about before. Pharaoh gets angry, and he accuses them. The Hebrew is very specific. He says, I, I have a literal translation. He says, lazy you are. And then he yells it you, like a raving madman. Lazy! Your brick load will not be taken down one little bit. 
And you will have to go get straw and stubble wherever you can find it. Pharaoh, who I'm sure assumed they were coming to give up the cause, did not hear those magical words to drop the request. Kind as they were, they stuck to their God. And Pharaoh explodes in anger. You are lazy. Which had to have stung particularly hard. Because these people were anything but lazy. <laughs> they were working so hard. They were trying their best. They Losing sleep. I'm sure they were skinny as rails. Many had scars on their backs from the beatings that they were taking. And Pharaoh continues this national policy of destruction, which will get far worse as the story goes on. And it says that the men of Israel, I like how Moses worded this. Look at verse 19. It says, the foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce the number of bricks. I take that to mean that when the foreman went to approach Pharaoh, they had every confidence that things that day would be resolved. They probably had great hope going into that meeting that things would get better. And it wasn't until they saw Pharaoh's anger explode on them for themselves that they realized the peril that they were really in. But the pattern continues. They're hurt. They're smarting. They realize that they're in trouble. And instead of turning their concerns upward, what do they do? Well, that brings us to our third confrontation. They confront God's prophet. Moses and Aaron are actually waiting outside. They have this summit. They have this meeting. And Moses and Aaron are sort of showing a little bit of leadership wisdom here. They show that they're learning. They're quick studies at this whole leadership thing. They're no fools. They know exactly what Pharaoh's going to say to them. They're not surprised at this explosion of anger and accusation. They weren't privy to the meeting. They weren't allowed to be there. But they knew good and well what would happen. And so they're waiting outside to comfort them because they know this is going to go badly. And when the men come out of the meeting, when the men come out of the summit, this next part, I'm sure, was a slap in the face, a big surprise to Moses and Aaron. Here they thought they would be here to comfort hurting men. And the hurting men turn their anger and accusation upon Moses and Aaron. They begin by calling down a curse. They say, the Lord judge between us. Yes, they're invoking the name of the Lord, but that is not, that is not a nice thing to say. Imagine, imagine this, imagine, and you guys know Joe Baker and I are friends. We're standing here one day, Joe approaches me, we shake hands, I say, hello, how are you, good to see you, Lord bless you. You would say, oh yeah, you're doing great, you're friends. We're not brothers, for those of you curious, his last name is Baker, we've got, a, we've got the same glorious last name, but we are no brothers. Imagine Joe approaches me, I stuff my hands in my pocket, and I say, God have mercy on your soul. How many of you would think, wow, what a nice thing of Pastor Greg to say, one hoping that Joe will have mercy from God? Is that what any of you would think? No, you would say, what has happened between Joe and Greg? <laughs> There's an assumption of guilt, Right? You have done something wrong. God, have mercy on your soul. And that's what they're saying. God, judge between us. You are in the wrong. And they go on to tell him why. Everything was fine before you showed up. Everything was fine. And you, you, Moses, have put a sword in their hand to kill them. And this wasn't this wasn't uh, 
figure of speech. As I said, some of these foremen likely were nursing lash marks on their back from the beatings that they'd received at the hands of this brick shortage. They could point to the scars in their back and say, this is your doing. You are fools, is essentially what the people were telling Moses now. You have erred, you have gone astray, you brought harm upon us and not good. And that's a particularly bitter pill for Moses to swallow. He didn't want to come on this journey to begin with, did he? But it's clear that he loves his people. He doesn't want to see his people suffer. And he's got a growing heart for them. He's waiting outside the meeting to comfort people that have likely just gotten beaten up, and he knows it. And they turn on him. And now Moses is in a very lonely position, isn't he? Pharaoh doesn't want him. The people don't want him. What Moses does next, let's say it this way. The act was good and right and a clear step of his growth as a leader. The method, Moses wishes he had back. And Moses here is telling on himself. And this leads us to our fourth confrontation. Moses returns to the Lord with a fourfold accusation. Moses goes to the Lord. That's right. That's good. His instinct has now changed. It's not to turn inward. It's not to turn and run to Midian. It's not to do other things that may have been available to him. He's got a new instinct to take his needs to the Lord, and that will serve him well in the future. But in this case, he too responds in anger and accusation. He does this. He has this habit of when God tells him something he doesn't like, he knocks God down a peg and he refers to God again as Master or Adonai, anything other than the personal name of Yahweh. It's as though Moses can't bring himself to acknowledge this term of endearment. He again questions his calling. He says, I didn't even want to come here. Now I'm being yelled at by Pharaoh. I'm being yelled at my, by my people. I'm thought of so little. I didn't want to do this. I told you this would happen. Yet here I am. The third thing Moses did is he, he accuses God of the trouble that has come on the people. He lays it right at God's feet. They're getting beaten. They're getting worked to the bone. They're having to go get their own straw. And this is your doing. And he accuses God of failing to keep his word. You haven't saved your people at all, even though that's what you said you were going to do. And as I said, Moses is telling on himself years after the fact. I'm reminded of Psalm 73, 22, where the psalm writer says, before you, I acted like a beast. But friends, God has very broad shoulders. And God is not easily provoked. God doesn't God doesn't smack Moses down like a whack-a-mole. Though that's what he deserved. God heard it. And God does Moses the favor of not acknowledging it. He just says in 6.1, but the Lord said, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Now you're going to see. In God's wisdom and foresight, he knew that the people had to understand how awful Pharaoh was to be. And even despite all of this trouble, when the people left, do you know what they said about Egypt? They said, oh, we had the meat pots and the onions and as many melons as we could eat. Oh, what a wonderful land that was. Imagine what they would have said if Pharaoh just let them go. 
His own people had to see, God's own people had to see how bad Pharaoh really was. It was a hard grace, no doubt about it, but a necessary one in galvanizing this people and allowing God the platform to show Pharaoh who God really is. I don't have this as one of our applications, but dads, if you find yourself in a lonely position of leadership and you feel frustrated by that, take, take it to God. And it might come out a little heated. Be respectful to God as best as you can be, but know God has very wide shoulders. And he'd much rather a misguided attempt to come to him than no attempt at all. So take those needs to the Lord. I've got two applications I want us to consider before we wrap up this morning. Number one, I'd like us to contrast man's anger with God's patient response. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Dads, I have two thoughts for you. Dads in particular. Dads, I'm by no means above being angry. I'm by no means above expressing anger to my children. And my children will tell you before the Lord that their father has come to them many times saying sorry for that angry response that was wrong of them. And my kids always tell me they forgive me and that's wonderful to hear. There's two excuses that we make for ourselves when we get angry. And both are about just as bad as the other. One says, what about righteous indignation? Isn't there a place for righteous indignation? Dad's righteous indignation is always the easiest emotion to conjure. And it should never be a first resort, but a last. That's God's posture, and that needs to be ours. We're told right here that a man who holds his anger is better than the mighty. Do the hard things and refuse to resort to righteous indignation until it must be resorted to. The second excuse we make for ourselves is that when we get angry, things happen. They don't listen to me otherwise. Well, a couple notes on that. First of all, when we get angry and things happen around us, people move, that's usually the worst thing that can possibly happen to us because it rewards the wrong behavior. Your kids love you. Your wife loves you. They want to help you. They want to serve you. They don't want to see you mad. And they'll do what you say. Action will happen around you, but dads, they will resent you. And you'll pay for that down the road. And you don't want that. Patience, kindness, love. Let every man be quick to speak. I'm sorry. <laughs> Let every man be slow to speak, slow to anger. For the wrath of man, though it might get people to move around you, does not do the righteousness of God. Number two. As William Cooper said in the hymn, God moves in a mysterious way. He says this. He says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Behind every cloud is a smiling providence. <laughs> Dads, just like with my dad, whom I admire 
more than you can imagine. Life sometimes gets harder when you start to do the right things. And when life gets harder, it's easy to look up at God and say, God, why is this happening? And that is what Cooper is saying. Judge not the Lord by the immediate, by the weak, what you see now, by feeble strength. And start looking macro for the big things that God is doing in your life. And start to see how he's smiling on you in bigger and broader ways than you can imagine. I'll close with this thought. Christ died for your sins. If you have asked him to save you, he has rushed into your heart and regenerated you. You trust him, don't you, for taking care of your past. You know that whom he has justified, he has also glorified. You trust him for the future. You're not afraid to die. You know your home is in heaven. But what about everything in between those two poles? <laughs> the same Christ who died for you holds your future. The Puritan said it like this. Your past, your present, and your future are held in nail-pierced hands. He loves you. And you can trust him with the vicissitudes and difficulties of life. Let's pray. Father, give us grace to look to you even when times are tough. Even when following you makes it tough. That's probably the hardest one we encounter. We expect the world to act like the world, but when Hard things come from good actions, from godly actions. That disorients us. And it did Moses, and it did the people. I pray that we would look to you, leaving off the anger and the accusation, in full faith and hope and trust in what you're going to do. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.